Well, last week we observed that the book of Lamentations is a funeral dirge. That these are five poems that uh, stand on their own and yet uh, they are tied together as we see the author describing his grief and anguish and pain over the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of God's temple. And yet... These poems are not the rambling of one man's pain as he sorrowfully deals with life, but rather you see a great amount of structure as we see a careful, thoughtful response in grief by the author as he now in these poems writes in an acrostic format so that you see a picture of this book is then the A to Z of sorts in regards to dealing with pain and grief and anguish. And so what we'll do then tonight is we're going to look at this first poem in Lamentations chapter 1. Let me grab your Bibles there and if you have a pew Bible that's page 685 and that book is is found right after the book of Jeremiah. We notice when we begin this to keep this in mind as we study that the first poem is not intended for you to then think you have all of the answers or all the solutions by the time you get through the first poem. That would be like reading Philippians 1 and thinking, okay, well, since I finished 1, uh, that's all I need to know. All the answers are summed up right there. That what you are seeing in the book of Lamentations is a journey. That it is really a, a, a progress that's happening as the author explores pain and grief. And so what we will look at tonight, I think, is going to be how we would describe the starting point. Where we ought to begin as a godly response to dealing with grief and dealing with pain and and difficulty. Uh, You'll notice then that first poem is 22 verses. Again, this is in an acrostic, so each line beginning with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, And what you'll notice are are a couple of uh, important themes. And the biggest theme that you get out of this is that there is no comfort at all. Chapter 1, verse 2. She has no one to comfort. Verse Nine. She has no comforter. Verse 16. My eyes flow with tears, for a comfort is far from me. Verse 17. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. Verse 21. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. And so in this five repetition of there is no comfort, there is no one to comfort, and in these instances, three times the author is referring to the city and you have a personification of the city of Jerusalem and say there is no comfort for the city no comfort for any of its inhabitants and if it's for the city in verse 2 verse 9 and verse 17 but you'll also notice in this poem and as we go through this that the author will speak for himself and he will speak of his own grief and speak of his own sorrow and his own sadness in this and that's what you see in verse 16 and in verse 21 the author speaks of himself 
and says, there is no one to comfort me in all of this and all that I look around and see. And in all of this misery, there is no comfort tied closely to that is you will see the repetition of the word groaning throughout this poem. You see there in verses four, eight, 11, 21 and 22 that the city is groaning. The inhabitants of the city of groaning, the people are groaning and the author is groaning. And so what I want you to get a sense of is that this first poem is expressing truly an image of utter helplessness. Everyone is groaning. Everyone is sorrowful. There is no comfort anywhere. You'll notice that in verse 7 what he says, Jerusalem remembers in her days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from of old. When her people fell into the hand of the foe, there was none to help her. Her foes floated over her. They mocked her downfall. And so what you are getting here is this description of complete and utter helplessness. And that is perhaps really the essence of where grief begins is the feeling that there is no solution. There is no answer. There is no help, that there is no hope. And that's what the author is expressing throughout this very poem in this first one is to say there is nothing to think of that is positive at all. In fact, there in verse 7, you'll notice it says, Jerusalem is remembering back when things were good. And that's really kind of how that goes when it comes to anguish and grief is it doesn't feel like there's any future goodness or any future hope. And all that you are able to do is remember and recount The good old days when things weren't so bad, when things were better, when my sorrow was not so great, when my grief was not like this. But because the future seems dark and bleak, all that we can do is remember the past and the good that was back there. And that's what verse seven expresses is what Jerusalem is doing. All the inhabitants then are thinking back to this time when things were better, because right now the sorrow and grief is extreme. So much so jump down to verse 12 where he says there is it nothing to you all who pass by look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger and so here is the statement of we have it bad and nobody's had it worse than us Our sorrow is greater than anybody else's sorrow. Uh, Our grief is greater than anybody else's grief. And, And this is representative of what it is like to be in that situation where you just sit back and go, nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands the sorrow that I'm experiencing. Nobody can begin to compare the grief that I have. And that's what Jerusalem is saying. This is awful. And there is nobody who can express what we can express in terms of our sorrow and our sadness and and, and our grief. And, And that probably then is really the essence of the problem that this first poem is getting at, is that the author is just simply pointing out five times there's no one to comfort, five times 
groaning, 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 statement of no one can help, all hope is lost, all that we can remember in terms of good things is in the past, there's nothing in the present, and there's nothing in the future. In fact, there is no sorrow greater than our sorrow. Everyone look and see at the grief that we are experiencing. And that's the essence of the problem is that there is no comfort. And I think that is perhaps one of the challenges that comes about in trying to be godly in the face of grief and in the face of such pain is that what comfort can possibly be given to you? And you think about when you're in that kind of severity of pain and grief, what is somebody going to do? I think everybody appreciates, oh, well, okay, there's the sympathy of others. It's nice to have friends and family and things like that. But when you boil it down, what can somebody do for you in that time? And I think all of us have understood that helplessness from the other side. Here is somebody in great grief. Well, what can you do? What are you going to say? We talked about last week, that's often why we make a lot of mistakes in grief and try to come up with some kind of quick solution, witty saying, trite statement, as if this one liner is now going to make it all better and now the sun will be better tomorrow and it's all going to be fine and it's not going to work like that. There is no comfort. There is no way to help. There's nothing that you can say and there's nothing that you can do. Absolutely nothing. And that's what's being expressed in this lamentation is what is anybody going to do? Look at my sorrow. Look at my grief. Who is going to help? Who is going to come to my side and do anything about it? And that's the essence, I think, of when you're in that depth of of grief is, well, what's going to happen? Who is going to comfort? In fact, I think verse two is particularly interesting there in the beginning where he even makes the expression that. What you end up finding is that those who you thought were going to be your helpers, perhaps, and those who were your friends actually turn out to be your enemies. And he uses that in regards to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had attempted to prepare itself for this devastation by getting all kinds of alliances with other nations. They're going to be our friends when these nations come in and attack. So when Babylon comes, well, the Egyptians are going to help. We're going to get all these nations to help us out. And then verse 2 says, they all left. <laughs> there was nobody there. That our, our friends turned into our enemies. And that again represents what happens. Is in your time of sorrow and grief, it feels like you're all alone. And sometimes those who you thought would be the ones who would help you through this time can sometimes be the ones that hurt you the most. And so that's why you see such an expression of grief in this this first lamentation, how the author is just pouring it out in regards to the city itself, the, the sorrow of look at what has happened to the city. Look at how devastated we are. And then even the author himself is in that same position. That he doesn't write this from the kind of a, a, a aloof kind of feel like, oh, well, really bad for them. Isn't that sad? But he's right there with them in great anguish, in, in great sorrow. In fact, one of the things that you really see throughout this is a, a great uh, explanation and description of the intensity of the grief 
that he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are feeling. Verse 13 is, is probably one of my favorite images of this intensity. When he says there, from on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. You ever had a a grief like that where it feels like fire is in your bones? That's what he's saying. That's how bad things are for people right now. He says it hurts in the bones. It's like the bones are on fire. The pain and the grief that he experiences in this. The rest of verse 13, when it says there, he has left me stunned, faint all the day long. You can just see him as he writes this go, I don't even know what to do. I'm just stunned by what he has experienced. Stunned by what has happened to the city. And all the inhabitants of the city are just blown away at the depth of what has occurred that has brought the sorrow upon them. Look at verse 16. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. What a statement there is. My eyes are flowing with tears and an image that it just doesn't stop. The crying, the wailing, the pain, it just keeps going and going. The wailing continues. The crying will not cease. Verse 20, look, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me. Notice this gut wrenching description again, just tore up on the inside that my heart and my stomach are churning and wrung together. And so I'm just trying to give you a sense of what, where the author is at. And in the second poem, he'll express, he expresses a little bit here, but in the second poem, he'll express a lot of the reason why. Talk about the sinfulness of the people and what has brought this about. But this first poem is very much just an expression of, Lord, we hurt. Lord, we are in great pain. And the tears keep flowing. And the stomach is wrenched and the heart is wrung and there is no one to comfort and there's no one to help in fact there's nothing that anybody can do and you set that tone because i think it's important to recognize then that there are situations where we certainly come into that kind of grief and pain regarding our lives, regarding sin that we may be dealing with, regarding just various situations of loss, all kinds of reasons why we experience those things. Uh, there are certainly two massive events in my life that these kinds of things just really come to the truth of the matter. And as I've expressed to you, like the day when when April and I got the word from the, the doctor at Miami Children's Hospital, this is Grace's disability. Here's what she has been diagnosed with. The, the most numbing day of my life had to be that day. Uh, an inability to describe the physical intensity of pain that came from the emotional grief. That's where he is at. 
is he is tore up so much physically over what has happened because of his own grief, because he is so sorrowful over what has happened. It is so painful what he has seen and what they are experiencing, what they are going through. And so the author, as he pins this, remember, this isn't just simply, you know, let me soliloquy about things that happened in the past, that God preserved these words for a reason. To recognize for us that we're going to go through times like this. That we're going to have this kind of pain. This kind of grief and sorrow and anguish. Where the eyes are just flowing with tears and don't stop. And the heart is wrong. And the the stomach is wrenched. And you're going to go through all of that. And so as we look at this. Consider there are a number of truths and, and statements even of hope. Even in the midst of this pain that he is experiencing. Verse 18 is is most striking. Because here he says in verse 18, the Lord is in the right. Here he is just, just saying, I have just tears and sorrow and pain and no one can comfort. No one can help. Nobody can do anything about this. And yet he says, you know, there is a truth that I'm able to hold on to in the midst of this. A truth that I'm able to to grab onto, and that is the Lord is always right. That the Lord is right. And that's a statement that is found in the scriptures that is very powerful about the character and the very nature of God. Like Deuteronomy 32 and, and in verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. This is a truth that is really important that no matter what is happening and no matter how painful our situation or experience may be, that God is always in the right and there is never a place to charge God with wrongdoing. And I submit to you, that is probably one of the greatest temptations in grief. God has done something wrong. This isn't right. This shouldn't have happened. Things are going the wrong way, Lord. I truly believe that is about the essence of where the issue with Job turns the corner. Is because in the statements that Job makes to God, it comes down to him basically saying, you haven't done right here. And if I were able to present my case before God, I would be vindicated. There is a temptation in sorrow, in suffering, in pain to say, God has done something wrong. And he needs to correct it. Something is off. Something is amiss. And God needs to fix it. And you have here with with this author that I believe to be Jeremiah saying, even in all of my pain and even in all of my grief and sadness, God is always right. No matter what happens, God is always right. No matter what we suffer, no matter what we lose, no matter how hard life gets, God is always right. And the author here is able to express that, that he's able to step back and and say those words. In fact, I hope you will recognize the paradox that this lamentation really has. 
Because this lamentation, as well as many of the other ones, the author is saying over and over again, God, how could you do this? Look at the children lying in the streets. How could you do this? Look at all the devastation. How could you do this? The author says that over and over again. As he just, as we read last time, just graphic images of death and suffering. And while at the same time he's sitting there standing back and saying, God, how could this be? How could you do this? How is this going on? Look at these things and see. He also is saying, God is always right. An interesting paradox. Because on one hand, he's looking at this going, this is so painful. This is so much. And yet still the recognition that God is always right, which draws, I think, a very important conclusion for us in our walk with God. And that is, you're not always going to understand, but God is always right. I can't always put all these pieces together, but God is always right. I'm going to use Habakkuk a lot when we study this book, Lamentations, because Habakkuk is squarely on that ground. I don't understand what you're doing, but I know you're always right. Over and over again, he's expressing that to God. This doesn't make sense. We're wicked. Do something. Okay, Babylonians. Well, that doesn't sound right, but you're always right. So the just live by faith. The righteous live by faith. That's what it's all about. And here is what the author is doing at the very beginning of this thing. I don't understand this. How could this happen? Yes, I know we've sinned. There's some of the expressions in this. But look at the consequences. This is so much. But then to say God is always right. And so I don't always understand. But there's one thing I always understand. That God is faithful, that God is a rock, that God is justice, and that God is always right. And that is his beginning point as he's going to march through these poems of grief. And he expresses this overwhelming sorrow. The first step that he has is this, I don't understand, but God is always right. And I want us to then put this in terms of where we're going to see hope. And in each of our lessons, as we look at this book, we're going to look at some of the important godly truths that come out of each lamentation and look at the hope that is expressed, that is given for the generations who were dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem, as well as successive generations who deal with pain and sorrow and grief. I think one of the things that I think is just important to underline is, again, this reminder that the the psalmist wants to give us is when there's no one to comfort and put in parenthesis, there's always no one to comfort. I mean, when we got Grace's diagnosis, what were you going to do? What were you going to say? There's no comfort. There's nothing you could possibly do or possibly say. There's nothing. So here's the idea is that's what causes us to feel helpless and hopeless. Because there's nothing you can do. There's nothing your spouse can do. There's nothing your family can do. There's nothing your friends can do. It just is what it is. And that's where Jeremiah is at. 
no one can comfort us. No one can comfort the city. No one can comfort me in my grief and in my anguish. And that is, I think, what can lead to the temptation to falling away is looking around and going how alone I feel. And I hope that you would recognize on the other side, there is the helplessness of the other side of that coin. That I said that to somebody recently um, in their sorrow, and I just said, I wish there was something I could do. There's nothing I can do. I can't help you. I wish I could. I wish I had the magic wand of fixing lives. And I could help you. But all I can tell you is I care about you. I love you, but I can't help you. There's nothing I can do for you. Which is why you have this in the scriptures, because there's really only one person who can comfort. You can't comfort. I can't comfort. Nothing I can do. Nothing you can do. But God can. God is the one who is able to comfort And I hope that you would then, as you sense the intensity of the grief, consider then how the words of Isaiah open. We studied Isaiah and we saw for 39 chapters the doom and destruction. And here's what's going to happen because of your sins. But remember, chapter 40 is the turning point. Chapter 40 is now Isaiah has a vision of how things are going to go. And as he speaks in his prophecy to Jerusalem, consider the words, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Very first words off of the mouth of Isaiah as Comfort. Why would that be so important? Because here they are saying, there is no one to help. We have no comfort. We have no solution. There is no one to help us. And Isaiah's prophecy is, yes, there is. And remember, Isaiah prophesied that before it even happened and says, comfort will be coming. Remember what verse three says, we're preparing the way of the Lord. Comfort is coming. That's what's happening with Isaiah. This isn't isolated to just simply Jerusalem. Think about the New Testament, how I'm looking forward to studying Second Corinthians with your Lord willing at the end of this year. Listen to how the book opens. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Did he say comfort enough in that paragraph? <laughs> I just find it fascinating that that's the way he opens this. And he says, blessed be God, because God is the one who gives comfort. 
There's not going to be comfort anywhere else. There's not going to be help anywhere else. There's not going to be hope anywhere else. God is the giver of comfort. We place our hope on all the wrong people as if they're going to be the ones to help us. They're going to deliver us. They're going to save us in our time of despair. And I would hope if you like underlining words, underline the word all. He is the giver of all comfort. Who's going to comfort you? God is. I can't. I can be sympathetic. I can give you a hug. But I'm not a good comforter because there's nothing I can do. But God can. And that's what he's expressing here. Here is Paul in all of their suffering and all of their pain and all they've experienced and suffering for the cause of Christ. And these Corinthians who've done the same, he says, you know what? God is the God of mercy and the God of comfort. And he comforts us so that we can comfort you so that you can comfort others because God is the God of comfort. So I just love that repetition up there. And we share abundantly in comfort too. They're obviously not talking about having lazy boy recliners laying in comfort. They're comforted in a far deeper way. And all that they were going through and all that they were sacrificing and all the pain and anguish. You talked about Paul who speaks of the weight of the churches and the responsibility that was on him and these Christians and his heart was with them. And it was particularly his heart was to these Corinthians. That's why he writes the second letter as there seems to be a disconnect and they're no longer then in touch with him anymore. And he's saying... You know, basically, oh, the, the, the pain and the grief of that separation, but God is the God of comfort. This is why prayer has to be the first place we turn to in grief and in pain. This is the reason why prayer is the first place to turn. And we didn't even need the book of Lamentations to know that, but the book of Lamentations just puts it right in front of our eyes. In the days of Jesus' time of anguish, as the scriptures speak of it, what's Jesus' first response there in Gethsemane? Prayer. Because God is the God of all comfort. Because God is the place you turn to. He is the place to go to as the first response. In fact, He's the only He is the only response. There is no other response that's going to be useful except going to God. Prayer then is the only way forward. It's the step we must take. Friends, I encourage you how often that seems to be like the step of last resort. That in our difficulty, in our despair, and in our grief and pain... God gets set aside when God is saying, you turn to me first, bring those things to me. That's why the book of Lamentations is so instructive for us, because here is a book that shows this person of God, probably Jeremiah, the prophet of God. Saying, I don't understand what's going on. Look at my grief. Look at my despair. Look at what's going on. God, I know you're always right, but this hurts. And you pour out your complaint. And you pour out your sorrow. And you pour out your anguish to God. 
That God does not block that. God is not the God of good times who says, well, you only pray to me when you're happy. (laughs) Only pray to me when when things are jolly and good and all all right. Uh Uh-uh. The book of Lamentations are five poems of gut-wrenching prayers. Painful prayers, grieving prayers, sorrowful prayers to God. Because we live before God and walk before Him by faith, not just simply when we like how things are going, but when things are painful and tough, we're walking with Him and sharing those things and telling Him about it. You see, the author's very first step is the same thing. Chapter 1, verse 9. O Lord, behold my affliction. Lord, look. (laughs) That's all he has. Lord, do you see? Verse verse 11. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. Verse 20. And as we conclude tonight, I just would just put it in terms of that for us this evening is that the first step we see is just to turn your prayer to God. You may not know what to say. You probably won't know what to say. I remember not knowing what to say. I knew I could basically say the two words that Jeremiah says three times in this very lamentation. Lord, look. Just look at this. I don't know. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. Lord, look. And that's all the author does right here. Is he just says, Lord, look. Look at my pain. See my distress. Look at what has happened to me. And to depend upon the promise of God, that God, you are the God of all comfort, and that everything you do is right. Everything you do is just. And so comfort us in our distress. These are the first steps for a godly response to pain and to grief, is to look first to God, who gives mercy. And who gives comfort. Don't walk away from God. And you may not know what to say to God. But get on your knees and give it to God. For he is the God of all comfort. You pull your song books out. We'll sing invitation song. When we invite you to a relationship with Jesus. And we invite you to see that God is a compassionate God. Who describes himself. As a God of compassion and comfort, the God of all comfort and mercy. And He has not left us alone in this life. He has not left us to walk this spiritual journey by ourselves. But just as a parent wants to hear the pain from the child's heart, so God wants to hear in our affliction and in our distress and in our pain. Will we always then take a first step toward God to always see that He is the only one who can comfort, the only one that can help, 
and the one who will draw near to us if we will draw near to him. Will you give your life to Jesus tonight by turning away from your sins? Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and come to the God of comfort who can take those sins away, who can cleanse you and make you a child of his. Will you come now tonight while we stand and while we sing?